think with me about some great beginnings. Uh, let's think, for example, about beginnings of novels or books or, or children's stories. The, the first line just catches you up, and you can't forget that line all through the book, and that's intentional. Great writers write great first lines, lines that cause you to say, I'm going to go on reading this book. I've got to find out what this is all about. So uh, I'm going to call out a line, and I want you to respond with what book that line might be from. Okay? All right. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens. How many of you read that in high school? That's where I read it. But what a line that is. The best of times and the worst of times seems paradoxical, doesn't it? How can they both be going on at the same time, but so often they are in our lives? There are very few times when we don't have some of both going on in our lives. All right, here's another one. Call me Ishmael. Moby Dick. Moby Dick. Three words, short sentence, because he's the major narrator of the book. And if you've read Moby Dick, you know that it, it, underlying the narrative is much biblical material. And, of course, uh, that's true of the first line, Ishmael. We know of Ishmael from Scripture, not the same one, yet in many ways, the same one. All right, suppose you heard this opening, this beginning. Faster than a speeding bullet. <laughs> I didn't have to go very far with that, did I? <laughs> Superman. Now, some of us grew up with Superman, and every day at 5 o'clock, Superman came on, and that's where I was, watching Superman. He was faster than a speeding bullet. What else was he? Able to leap tall buildings with a single bound. One more line in the middle of those. Stronger than the locomotive. I mean, this guy's the first superhero, Superman. Or suppose you heard this. Long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Star Trek. Star Trek. Star Trek. Okay. Everybody knows that. If you haven't seen the movie, you've seen allusions to that in other, other contexts. Those are great beginnings. Beginnings that make you want to keep watching. I want to know who this man is that's faster than a speeding bullet. Stronger than a locomotive, able to leave buildings with a single bound. Well, let's think about some Bible books that have very memorable beginnings. Now, you know the Bible is a library. How many books in the library? 66. And each one of those has a beginning. Think of some very memorable beginnings of Bible verses, of Bible books. Uh, 
Okay, I think we're going to have to let you raise your hand. So raise your hand, somebody, and tell us one that you just mumbled. Yes. The Lord is my shepherd. Wow. What a beginning that is. And how often that has been used to bring comfort and sought peace. The Lord is my shepherd. Great. What's another one? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. What a way to begin the Bible. But that's not the only place that line is used in the Bible. Where else is that line used in the Bible? And where is that? John, the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and nothing was created apart from this Word. So obviously John is wanting us to think back to what? Genesis 1. So we have the beginning of the old creation in Genesis 1, the beginning of the new creation in John 1. All right? Any others? I'm sorry? For God to love us? Yeah, okay. Well, John 3.16 is a great text. Probably one every one of us knows. Any of the first lines of a book? Okay. (laughs) And he always starts with his own name, doesn't he? Paul and Silas or Paul and Timothy or Paul and Titus. Uh, But Paul, many times by himself, he always has that same greeting at the beginning. Well, not exactly. It is the same in form, but look at them carefully. There are distinct differences that are aimed at pointing you in a certain direction in the letter. So Paul has great openings. He takes the old Greek, Greco-Roman epistle greeting, and he baptizes it for Christ. He brings together the Hebrew world and the Greek world. You know, he says, grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the Greek greeting. If you saw somebody on the street, you would say to them, grace to you. Shalom, peace, is the greeting of who? The Jews. So you have the Jewish world and the Gentile world put together by Paul around Jesus. What a statement that is. It's not just a greeting, it's a theological affirmation that all people come together through Jesus Christ. So Paul's first lines are very important. Sometimes he says, Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ. Sometimes he said, Paul, servant of Jesus Christ. There's a reason for that change, and it has to do with the nature of the letter. When he says apostle, he's dealing with churches that are in trouble and who may be reacting against him. It's a statement of authority. I'm called to be an apostle. When he says servant, it's most likely the church is having trouble with servanthood. So what's he setting himself out as? The model, the example to follow. I am a servant 
of Jesus Christ and a servant of yours. So he's not coming down with the heavy hand of apostle. He's coming with a gentle touch of a servant and saying, this is how it should be in your church. Okay, any, any others anybody can think of? James, and of course, uh, in, his, in his letter, he talks about faith without works. That's a very strong letter that we have from James. Uh, but James' greeting is very interesting, too. It's different from Paul's. Uh, he doesn't really tell us much about himself, but he tells us he's writing to the churches in the dispersion. Well, who are the churches in the dispersion? The churches scattered around all over the Greco-Roman world, just like the Jews had been dispersed across the world. So Christians were coming to exist across the world, and so he wrote to the churches in the dispersion, probably from Jerusalem very early on. How about this phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ? What book? It's kind of a giveaway, isn't it? You have to do that every once in a while. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The first word in the book in Greek is apocalypsis, apocalypsis, which means unveiling or revealing. And so we translate it in English, the revelation of Jesus Christ. All of these are beginnings of great significance, but I'll bet you never thought of Acts 1-1 as having a strong and important beginning. Can you even think of Acts 1-1? Let's look at it. Acts 1-1. In the first book, Theophilus, I read about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, he tells us some pretty important things here. He says over the book previous to this, there were a lot of Christians that didn't have maybe both books, and they would wonder, well, what was the earlier book, and what is the earlier book? Luke. Luke. So this is the second book Luke is writing to the churches, and he's writing to a person. Who's he addressing? Theophilus. Lover of God. That's a, that's a meaning of the word Theophilus in Greek, lover of God. Some people believe Theophilus was an individual. Some people believe Theophilus was a group of people who were coming to faith in Christ because he writes his book to help them understand what God has done in the world and in history. It could be either way, and it really doesn't matter that much. It's interesting. I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught. From the beginning. Now, is that what your translation says? All that Jesus did and taught? Anybody have a different translation? All that Jesus began to do and teach? 
how are they different? He, be, he did and taught, or he began to do and teach. How is that different? Past tense, he did and taught. Present tense, he began to do and teach, which implies he is what? He is still doing and teaching. And the book of Acts is about Jesus continuing to do and teach through his people in the world, through the church. And that leads us directly to consider what it means to be Jesus doing and teaching in the world. And Paul says it means we are the body of Christ. We are the presence of Christ in the world. He does and teaches through us. That's Paul's favorite understanding of the church. The church as the body of Christ. Somehow when people see us, they should see who? Jesus. Sometimes, somehow when they hear us talk, they should hear who? Jesus. So I want us to think this morning for a few minutes about what it means to be the body of Christ. And I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I gave the worship team Romans, and then I changed my mind. They're getting used to that by now. Acts chapter, not Acts chapter 12. Did I say Acts? 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I haven't had a whole lot of sleep. You don't get a lot of sleep at the monastery. You start at 4 a.m. And I lost an hour last night, and I flew straight from the desert of New Mexico and got in here about 11 o'clock. So uh, I'm kind of going on fumes this morning. So it's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and this is a familiar body passage where he deals with the body of Christ in most detail. But I want us to hear what he has to say because it's very important. Who are we in the world? We are Jesus doing and teaching through us. Doesn't mean we are Jesus, but he is doing and teaching through us. So 1 Corinthians 12, and I want us to look down at verse 12. And I'm going to get there. terrible. I've been using this Bible for 10 years. I can't turn the pages. Okay. 1 Corinthians 12. This passage is so rich and has such depth to it. Uh, We simply must consider it as we consider being the church of God in the 21st century. We could put it this way, being the body of Christ in the 21st century. That's who we are, Paul says. Look at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one, so it is with Christ. Now, what did you hear over and over in what I just read? One, one, one and many. Body's one, but there are many members, as it is with Christ. After all, we are Christ's 
body, right? Okay, go ahead in verse 13. For in the, in, in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. How many times has he used one already? Well, he's just starting. That's kind of the theological statement that he's basing this teaching on. Now let's go ahead in verse 14. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but many members. He'd already said that in verse 12. If the foot would say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. So here we have Paul's first statement about the body. There are many members in the body, and each member is important. Each member is important. It's not that there are some members who are important, and, and then there are all the rest of us. Each member is important. Never forget that. You are important to this church. Whatever this church does in the future will be because you have been an important part of that. Now, the foot can't say, well, I'm not part of the body, and sort of hang around somewhere else. Be kind of ridiculous, wouldn't it? The foot's over in the living room. The rest of you's in the kitchen. Can't do that. So with the body, we can't say, well, I'm not important, really. I'm you know, I just, I go and people are nice, and, but I'm not really important. What does Paul say here? You are important because you are one of the members of the body. Doesn't matter what you do, what your role is in this church. You are essentially important. Uh, you may be the person who, who sweeps the floors after fellowship. Or you may be the person who stands in the pulpit on Sunday morning. You are equally important to the church. Let's go on. And in verse, we went down, I think, to verse 18. Start with verse 19. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members but one body. How many times has he said this? Many members, but one body. Well, let's go on. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor can the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Ooh, this is getting a little tough. My particular perceptions of someone do not determine 
their importance to the body of Christ. My particular feelings about someone else do not determine their importance to the body of Christ. If I'm important, they are also equally important. On the contrary, verse 22, the members of that body that seem to be of weaker are indispensable. I have trouble with anything above two, two syllables. And those members of the body that we think dishonorable or less honorable, we do with great, deal with, with greater honor. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect, whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has arranged the body giving the greatest honor to the inferior member that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. So what happens when uh, some people think, uh, well, we're really the important ones here. Uh, what, ha- what begins to happen in the fellowship? Dissension begins to happen. Talk begins to happen. And talk can blow up and explode and create a disaster situation. It should not be so, Paul says here, but we are rather to have the same care for each other. This is a basic principle of the Church of Christ, that we care for each other with the same care. Well, in verse 26, If one member suffers, all suffer together. I've seen a lot of that here. That kind of care that we must have for one another as members of the body. If if one suffers, then all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together together. So the sense of oneness that Paul is setting before us is one that is one that is is a basic understanding of what the nature of the body of Christ should be. Where people are caring for one another regardless of their place or their position or their power. Every person is important. No person is unimportant to the king. Every person is important to the king. And as part of the body, should be important to us as well. So Paul concludes this, uh, at least for us today. Now, you are the body of Christ. Who's he talking about? Yeah, this community of faith, this church. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So there's one body and many members. That's what he started with in verse 12. Now he's just said it again in this verse 27. One body, many members. Everybody must have a mind. 
You have a mind. I have something of a mind. Everybody must have a mind. Paul doesn't speak directly to that here. He speaks more to the idea of unity and diversity here. But he does speak of it in Philippians chapter 2. And that's what we heard read earlier in the service. Philippians chapter 2. This great text is believed by many to be an early Christian hymn that Paul himself may have composed or may have been part of the communities which Paul served. It has all the marks of a hymn in Greek uh, and is a beautiful, beautiful passage. But let's see how it starts in chapter 2, verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, now, Paul is not asking if, if there is some. This is a construction in Greek, which means a, con- a conditional sentence, which in, in fact is a fact. So what he's saying is there is encouragement in Christ. Any consolation from love, my goodness, sure there is. Any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. So obviously Paul sees the Philippian congregation and as he looks at them, what's the status of his joy? Why does he have to say, make my joy complete? Is it complete? Apparently not. They can help it be complete. Make my joy complete by being, listen to this, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Did he say that enough? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Any other? Let each of you look not to your own interests, but the interests of the others. This is Jesus' love. Jesus' love enfleshed in his body, the church in the world. And it should be so pronounced that people outside the church will look at the church and say, how these people love each other and desire to be part of this kind of community of love and grace. He's going to close by saying, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. After all, if we're his body, then whose mind should be in us. So we are one body, but many members. Every member is vitally important. And together, we have the mind of Christ. This is written in plural. It's not speaking about an individual. Paul is saying, together, let us have the mind of Christ. It's a word to the church, the corporate body of the church. The body must have a mind 
But which mind does the body have? Paul makes it clear. We must have the mind of Christ. Look at how he describes it. Let the same mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's Jesus' love. And Paul says that mind, which results in that love, must be in us as the body of Christ in the world. I think there's a lot of that here at Spring Creek. I see it every Sunday. I hear about it during the week. Let us strive in the days ahead, very crucial, very important days. Let us strive to remember who we are. We're not just the church that meets at this building. In fact, that's probably the least of who we are. We are the body of Christ. There is one body, and there are many members. But we are to love each member as Christ loves them, even as we hope they love us as Christ loves us. And then we can be that people through whom his spirit can do far more abundantly than we can ever ask or think. He will do it if we make his mind our mind and take our place faithfully in the body of Christ. Why not? Why not do it and see what happens? We're thankful, Lord, that in your mercy, you called us to be part of the body of Christ in the world. We do not deserve this privilege or this honor, but in your mercy and grace, you have made it possible for us to be in this body. So maybe we commit ourselves anew to, to finding our place, to assuming our role, whether it be big toe or left ear, so that this body can be the body of Christ in its fullness, so that you can live in us and through us, and the world will be able to see and will come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.